Well, good morning, Hollows Church family. Uh, how are you all doing this morning? Good, good. Um, I'd like to start our time uh, with a moment of prayer. Would you please join me? Father, thank you for um, these wonderful brothers and sisters in the city of Seattle. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Uh, thank you for giving us the ability to know you, for revealing yourself to us. Um, I pray that you would please perfect my words, um, that all the glory would be given to you, and that ultimately through the preaching of your word and through spending time um, in and around the things you've given us to learn, would we be encouraged, would we be admonished, um, and ultimately would we be uh, filled up with your spirit to go and accomplish the work that you've set before us. In your name I pray, amen. Well, uh, Thank you for joining us this morning and for those joining on the live stream. Thank you as well from the comfort of your living room or your car or wherever you might be. Uh, my name is James um, and I attend the West Seattle location of the Hollows and my wife and I have been attending for uh, seven years and I get the good pleasure of preaching this morning as a part of our normal series through Luke. Um, I had the opportunity to speak back in the summer in our summer sermon series um, as uh, different uh, people in the body are filling in for the Arthurs as they're on their extended leave. Um, so, thank you for spending time with us this morning. I hope you enjoyed uh, the silent reflection time. That's something that I particularly loved and uh, was uh, something that was really drawn to seven years ago when Ellie and I joined this church. Um, so I figured, hey, this is a good opportunity for me to bring it back, um, not just for the sake of putting some cool quotes on the slides, but ultimately for helping through all of the different elements of our liturgy to point our hearts um, worshipfully, uh, worshipfully and openly um, toward our Lord as we uh, learn about him and praise him this morning and worship him through the preaching of his word. So I'd like to start with a quick story. Uh, my sweet wife, Ellie, back there, who many of you in this room don't have the opportunity to know just because this isn't the place we normally attend, um, she is a go-getter. She doesn't let things hold her back. When she puts her mind to something, she'll do it. And uh, there are no, generally no excuses in that process. And so late this fall, when we had our wonderful summer that extended into October, uh, we used that opportunity to refinish one of our decks. And um, that looked like chipping all the paint off of the old deck and then staining it with new stains so that it could survive another winter. Now, that sounds like a simple process, but without the right tools, it's a very difficult endeavor. And sweet Ellie decided one day, you know what? James is dragging his feet. I'm going to get started on this project. And so I got home from work one day, and she was chipping up paint with a butter knife a butter knife. And two or three days of watching her chip up paint with a butter knife, she said, you know, this is actually working. I'm making some progress. I think we can do it. I'm like, honey, you know, our deck's probably about half the size of this area up here. It's going to take all winter for you to chip up the paint, and then we still have to stain it. So I went to the store and got a paint scraper, and that helped. We made a little more progress, you know, a step above the butter knife, but it still wasn't great. So then I got a palm sander from my father, who has a million tools, and we used the palm sander to try to sand down the paint, and that was working even better than the paint uh, chipper, stripper, whatever the, the tool was I just referenced, but it still wasn't helping at the speed that we needed it to. And so then finally, we thought we'd pull out all the stops and get some chemical paint stripper, a giant vat of toxic liquid that says, do not allow near small children or pregnant women or nursing women because this will cause some harm. So we figured, surely this will take the paint off. So I spent a few days applying that to the paint, 
surely it took a lot off, but even that wasn't enough. And so by the grace of God, my neighbor who is a carpenter heard me struggling for a week and a half with Ellie on this deck and he came by and he said, hey buddy, do you need some help? I said, I would love some help. What do you have for me, Pat? And Pat said, I have a belt sander. I should, should get you taken care of in no time. I heard some O's. Some people in here know what a belt sander is. I learned for the first time what a belt sander is. Imagine a conveyor belt of sandpaper that just does all the work for you while you hold it in place. And I'll tell you what, in two days, that deck was stripped clean, the wood underneath was revealed, and we had it stained in no time. Let me tell you another story. Uh, Here's a second illustration. On January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was declared to all enslaved people in Confederate territories, and they were declared free. On April 9th, 1865, the most powerful Confederate army surrendered, making the beginning of the end of our civil war here in the United States. It wasn't, however, until June 19th, 1865, months after this unofficial end of the civil war and years after the Emancipation Proclamation, that 250,000 enslaved black people in what is now the state of Texas were free. And how were they free? Well, federal forces moved in to declare the word of freedom, to announce the power of freedom. They had to bring an alignment with the reality that people were experiencing. There were people living out of alignment with reality. There was power that could free them, but they hadn't experienced it yet. And I find this a particularly stunning and sensitive analogy for us here in understanding the power of the Spirit as we work through this passage here in Luke 10. Friends, we have been given a belt sander. We have been given authority and power. Christ has blessed us with all things. And we don't have to do the work that he has set us to do alone and on our own power. Instead, we get to live into his power and his authority. We get to declare it. And through that, we get to be transformed to do the work that he wants us to do, to heal the world from sin and brokenness through his power. What a difficult thing to do if we think that we have to go through our lives and just muscle through it and just pray a little harder or just fight sin a little harder. Those are all very important things, but ultimately we get to do those things through the power of Christ in us. So with that context, would you please join me as we read through Luke 10, 1 through 24, and this is a really long passage, but there's a lot of goodness in here. As a matter of fact, I believe and I have read that this is one of the select number of passages in our New Testament that ties together so many elements of the biblical story arc and talking about original sin, talking about the power of the Spirit, pointing to the Trinity, understanding the work that Christ ultimately will do on the cross, which is future tense in this passage and in this context, and ultimately pointing us to the work we do today here as a church and the promise of Christ's return. There's a lot going on in here. We're not going to be able to go through it all today. Um, So let's just spend a moment reading through the passage and then working through it. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. 
and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Corazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Well, we're going to spend just five minutes or so um, going through uh, a few aspects of this sermon. Uh, call them little mini sermons. You're welcome. So it'll be sermons nestled within a sermon because there's just so much here to talk about. And my prayer is that through this time, as you not only read through this with me, heard the word spoken, um, that you would be inspired by the Spirit to go your way after this and spend some time meditating on different components of this passage. I know, and it has been my prayer for everyone in this room and who might be watching, that the Holy Spirit would convict you of different things in your lives and encourage you in different things in your lives and use the different aspects of this passage to light a spark in your mind that you would then go and take it and study. So my hope is that a few of these touching points might be areas where you can launch off in your study. And I'll tell you what, they're amazing uh, biblical commentaries online um, that are just full of grace and truth. And uh, those are great guides for you as you choose to go through these. And I know they've been great guides for me as I prepared for today. And then I want the remainder of our time together to focus on the aspects uh, that I started this uh, sermon with. The idea of this belt sander, the idea of this authority, that we don't have to do this on our own. And we can be encouraged and empowered through that and understanding the reality of Christ's victory that we get to live in. Are you with me? Sound good? Alrighty. So, and we're going to move quickly. 
as I'm, I'm going to try, try not to rush, but we do have some things to cover as a family after this, so I don't want to take too much time. Uh, but let's start with verse 1, chapter 10. The after this that the author of Luke points us to is referring to what uh, Mark and a handful of other men walked us through last week as we heard the word preached. This idea of prioritizing our lives properly as we answer Jesus' call. Uh, other, where, other places in Luke, it's considered, or it's called rather, counting the cost. And so uh, there are many different examples of this. Let me just walk through a few of these. But first, it's important we remember that Jesus instructs us to count the cost before endeavoring on our work with him. And this cost isn't just taking money, putting it in the bag, throwing it in the fire, and burning it. It's not getting rid of wealth. It is taking wealth and investing it and getting a return. And we see this kind of language all throughout Scripture. And I wonder, church, if sometimes we forget that truth. That if instead we look at the work we have to do as a burden that we get to trudge through, and it's only an expense without any ROI, any return on investment. Church, that's not the case. We get to leverage the gifts and talents and opportunities and lifestyles that God has put us into for his glory and to build his kingdom. And so I think it's important that we remember that this theme doesn't just exist here in Luke as it's setting up the sending of the 72, but it exists all throughout the pages of scripture. Um, let's look specifically here at Luke 9, 62. Um, I guess this is before I'm getting lost in my notes here, but let's address the text really quickly. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And I don't want to preach over what was already spoken, but I just want to remind us that, you know, again, this is a metaphor of fruitfulness. The plow produces fruit. The fruit nourishes and provides money, perhaps in the marketplace in these days and does still today. So we're called to put our hand to the plow and not look back because we've counted the cost and know that moving forward with that plow and the power of the Spirit is what we're called to do. Let's look at a couple other examples. Um, later in Mark, um, there's a man who goes to build a tower, and it's a parable that Jesus tells to guard against foolishness in some senses, you know, maybe a secular reading of the text, but really we understand it to be guarding against getting too far down on our own power without understanding what it is we're exactly called to do, without understanding what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It is difficult. The cross is a burden. The cross is painful. The cross is sacrificial. And there are honest, difficult elements that exist in the life of a Christian. But it shouldn't be something that deters us ultimately from taking up our cross and following Jesus because we understand that there is a greater joy that we get to experience and there's a greater praise that we get to bring not to ourselves but to the one who made us as ourselves in this whole process. So that parable of the tower, counting the cost, you know, let's go back to that. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that story or that parable, but the idea is, you know, you don't want to... Uh, Dig, dig your foundation in the middle of the city for all to see to build this structure and get halfway through and run out of funds. And then there's this half-built structure in the middle of the city for all to see and laugh at. That's embarrassing, right? The idea, though, is that there's a real danger in not counting the cost before we embark on the journey of being a disciple of Jesus and living according to his will. 
Two other parables then that follow this that are usually uh, connected. It's the parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price. The idea that a man found a treasure in a field, buried. This is how wealth was stored back 2,000 years ago before we had uh, banks and cryptography and other things that secure our digital and physical um, livelihoods and assets. But wealth was buried and sometimes it was forgotten. It's where the old idea of finding buried treasure you know, comes from. Well, Jesus leverages this idea to tell the parable of the man who was digging in a field, finds this treasure and says, wow, no one else knows this is here but me. I know that this is way more valuable than anything else I have. Even the owner of the field doesn't understand this. So what does the man do? He sells everything. He pays the price to get the return on investment that is the treasure buried in the field. And again, the pearl of great price, very similar but much shorter. The idea that a man found a pearl in an oyster, again, the seller didn't know. And so what does he do? He sells everything to acquire that pearl of great price. So this is the context, ultimately, that we read in just those two simple words. After this, in the first verse of of chapter 10, as he sends the 72 out to proclaim the word in advance of his his own proclaiming of the kingdom. Verse 2, the theme here is we are integral but inadequate. And I know this can be a difficult uh, idea for some to grasp. And I don't mean to say this to, to, to heap any shame. I think it's just a reality. We need to understand that, especially in the city, it is all about what can we do to better other things? How much value do we bring to the equation that without us, something might fall apart? And again, this isn't just unique to the city of Seattle. This is an American notion, and ultimately it's a human notion. This is something that everybody struggles with. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to recognize and work through as we're being sanctified and working out our faith with fear and trembling. Um, It's important to understand that God says we need to send more labor, or we need to pray for more laborers to be sent. We can't accomplish God's purposes singularly on our own. We're not praying to be the next Pope who just solves everything with one declaration, or the next C.S. Lewis, or the next John Piper, or the next Ignatius of Antioch, or insert your name here of influential Christian leader or thinker or writer. Those people are good, and praying for those things are good, but really, in some senses of the word, what we're called to do is a numbers game, and it relies on all of us common people compared to the St. Ignatius and the Martin Luthers of the world and the John Pipers of the world and anyone else. Most of us in this room won't ever get to that kind of fame or notoriety in Christian thinking, but we are still called by God to be the laborers that are sent into the harvest and continue to pray for more laborers. That in and of itself is humbling, and I think it puts us in the right mindset to understand that we on our own power are inadequate, and it takes a united body of faith, of course here in this room, but throughout all the expressions of the hollows, throughout all other believers in the city and around the world. Church, it might feel like we're a little alone here in the West, like we're, we're of a shrinking number. And in some metrics, that's true, although it depends on the questions you ask and who you ask them. But the church around the world is exploding. The African church is growing faster than any other church in the world. It's the largest concentration of believers in any continent right now is in Africa. The Iranian church, the Chinese church, churches that are under immense persecution are growing. And we get to be encouraged by that fact. We are uniting in the work that our brothers and sisters all around the world are doing, either in freedom or in bondage. 
And that is a great reminder when we think of what Jesus tells us when, when he says we need more laborers. Those are the laborers. We are the laborers, and we get to labor alongside of each other for the sake of building up his kingdom. Amen? Another item here in verse 3, uh, we see a theme uh, brought out. This is an interesting one, especially with the last two and a half years as they've been so difficult for all of us in some way or another. It's that God doesn't always lead us around a challenge, but instead he sometimes leads us through. God doesn't always quiet the storm for us, um, but he does, as we read in the Psalms, lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't lead us always around the valley of the shadow of death. Um, as we see here in the text specifically, we are lambs being thrown out into the midst of wolves. Couldn't God have just gotten rid of the wolves? Clearly those wolves serve some purpose in the preaching of his gospel. And they teach us something about the reality of sin and death and what happens when we walk away from the promises of God and the promises of Jesus and look at the way that he designed the world to work and say, no, we know better. That's outdated. That's antiquated. We've figured it out, and we've learned the real route to human flourishing. Church, wolves are a byproduct of sin, and we live in a fallen world, so they're going to be all around us. And it's important to remember in this that our lives are not our own. We see in Romans 8.36, and granted, Paul wrote this in a very different context than what we live here. Um, he wrote this under great persecution, where the church was being killed. Christians were being used as literal torches to light the path in Rome. And he writes, we are being killed all day long. There is an element of the Christian life that requires us to acknowledge that, again, our lives are not our own. And that's okay. In the words of John Piper here, I'm going to read a quote. Uh, God regards faithfulness to him as more important than life. Repeatedly, God shows that forsaking him is to forfeit life. This is a radical God-centeredness that is intellectually and emotionally foreign, it seems, to much of the contemporary Christian church. The instincts of many of today's preachers and churchgoers seem to go in the other direction, to treat life on earth as the great central value and the honor of God as subservient to then that central value. If God does not serve our comforts here, we say, then he is unworthy. And this is a great sorrow and weakness in the church and her mission. What a word. And maybe this convicts, maybe this encourages, maybe this just provides a proper perspective. I pray that the Spirit would do only the work the Spirit can do in your hearts as you contemplate this word. But ultimately, it's an important thing to remember that we shouldn't look at suffering in the Christian life and ultimately turn away and say, well, clearly this must not be the right path. We must instead, through the power of the Spirit, move through it. That's an important theme to hold on to as we move to the last portion of, um, of our talk today. And finally here, another example of this that I love is uh, James. The book of James is such a pragmatic and it seems uh, applicable letter to, of course, the early church, but to us today. It has so much relevance to the way that we live life and the way that our society thinks about what it means to be autonomous. Uh, James 4.15, the retort is, if the Lord wills, we will live and then we will do this or that. And the context of that passage is just the, um, the audacity, the author says, of someone to say, 
I have the future in my control. Surely next year I'll go to this city or that city and I'll trade and I'll make a profit and I have everything in the palm of my hand. I have a work back schedule. I have a plan. I'm gonna get an ROI from this based on my own actions and my own knowledge of what I think will happen. And James reminds us, the author of James reminds us that that is not the case. What are we, friends? We are a mist that is here for a moment and then disappears. Our 80, 90, 70 year lifespan, shorter, longer, whatever the Lord wills, is but the blink of an eye in the whole of the history of the world that our Lord has created. And that is, again, an important reminder when we think about our submission to Christ in His direction of our lives as that direction might be straight into the mouth of a wolf. So moving on to the next little sermonette here. The word even in verse 17, and I know we just skipped past the whole big chunk of that passage, but just bear with me here. The word even is crucial in bolstering our faith in God's complete sovereignty. So let's put the sovereignty of the Lord in front of us. Um, and again, that passage here, just so we're all um, uh, in, in the right context, this is when the 72 return and they say, Jesus, we're so excited. Even the spirits are subject to us in your name. So with that in mind, they're excited about the fact that they were able to cast out demons. They were able to look at the face of spiritual oppression and say, not here, not today, Satan, as it were. And Satan listened, his minions listened. So they're blown away. This is a new thing for them to experience. Ancient Jewish cosmology understood demons to be one of the primary influences behind many calamities like sickness, illness, death, mental illness, all of these different things. So when the Jews said, even the demons, it was a statement that implied, because we have power over the greater, we then know we have actually power over the lesser. This is a common, uh, uh, it's not a turn of phrase, I'm losing the word on what it might be called, but it's a common method that... Uh, Jewish authors use to illustrate a point. So they say, hey, like if you've got power over here and this has power over that, then it means you also have power over that. So you got it all. This is what they were celebrating. And I just want to show you just so you don't have to take my word for it so that you can see this in scripture. Uh, Job is one beautiful example of a book that highlights this fact. And I'm going to read here from Job 1, 8 through 19. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him that his house and all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his, being Job's, sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While that servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. 
and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Church, this passage illustrates so many different elements of God's providence that everything is in his powerful hands. We see examples of the principalities, Satan himself being handed a limited and confined authority. Supernatural powers are in the power of God, or under, I should say, the power of God. And then we'll keep working down on the chain of command from the greater to the lesser. And these are all P's, so bear with me. It might get a little cheesy, but hopefully it'll be a helpful mnemonic so you can remember. So principalities are all under his authority, and we saw that in the passage. Planets, the grandeur of creation, nature as it's commonly known, the wind that comes and tears down the house and destroys Job's family, that is ultimately under the authority of God. Princes, the Chaldeans, the nations and the powers of this world, our leaders, whether they are good and righteous or whether they are evil and lamentable, they are both under the authority of God. People like you and me when we're not leaders, we are under the authority of God. We're all subject to him as his willing servants. And then finally, panthers, the flora and the fauna, all of these other living elements of nature, every aspect of creation is under the authority of God. And so this understanding, the sovereignty of God, leads me ultimately to transition to what's on my heart pastorally for all of us here today, which is to ask yourself a question. Are you living in the power and authority that Christ has delivered to you in his death and resurrection? And you don't have to answer that out loud, but ponder that question. Are you chipping paint with a butter knife? when the creator of the universe has given you a belt sander? Now, as you ponder that question, I just want to anchor us again back in the teaching text. How do we know that this is what God is telling us through the author of Luke? So let's take some time here and just a little bit of time to trace the theme and ramifications of this through scripture. Let's look at this subset of our teaching passage specifically, Luke 10, 16 through 20. Listen to this chain of command here. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me, being the Father. And then let's follow that again through here. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, the name of Jesus. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Couple this text with Ephesians 6, 12, where we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, when you see an enemy, whatever that enemy might look like, however that enemy presents themselves to you as flesh and blood, be reminded, they are not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. Evil, sin, and death, those are your enemy. And perhaps the individual in front of you or on the screen 
on the other side of the pixels on the screen in front of you, perhaps they're just the animating force that allows the enemy to have a stronghold in God's created order for a time. I think personally, and what I've seen in so many other brothers and sisters, this concept can single-handedly allow us to so much more easily embody the command to love our enemies. It's so much harder to love someone if we think that they personally, in the deepest, darkest depths of their soul and their will, have set it out to make our lives difficult. But if instead we can recognize that perhaps they're just a puppet and the real enemy is the person who's working the puppet, perhaps they're just complicit in a long chain of command of evil and sin and fallenness and brokenness, this to me has been a great relief in truly loving my enemy and truly praying for my enemy and my enemies, whether those be certain political figures, certain rulers around the world, certain people in my life, certain coworkers, fill in the blank. I mean, we all have enemies of different stripes and sizes. Sometimes they cause emotional violence, sometimes they cause physical violence, sometimes they cause financial violence, and sometimes they cause spiritual violence. But church, those people are not our enemies. In the next passage here, John paints a picture of the mechanism that then grants us believers reading this passage today with the certainty that we have access to the same authority that the 72 did. I would even argue it's not the same authority, but it's actually a more full and more powerful expression of that authority. So let's read this together. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen to this. This is awesome. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, here it is, because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's John 16, 7 through 11. How is the ruler of this world judged? We read this in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And it tells us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you hear the threat? Do you hear the similarities? We have a victory that's been won in Christ in his death and resurrection. We had a legal obligation to pay back the debt that sin has opened up in God's creation that we could not ourselves afford. And instead, the judge looked to another and said, it is paid and you are free. Go live in your freedom. Do the work then that I've called you to do to declare others free. Satan and his minions no longer have any leverage over us. Again, we see this idea of us having even more power and authority than the 72 um, uh, ring true here in John 14, 12 through 14. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Remember, this is Jesus speaking these words. Jesus telling his disciples, you're going to do greater works than I do. That's an astounding concept to wrap your head around. Because I am going to the Father, 
And remember, what happens when Jesus goes to the Father? We just read in the previous passage. He sends his helper. And that helper, the Spirit, is our animating force. That helper, the Spirit, is who gives us ultimately this belt sander, if you will, to do his work in his power. Let me go back to the text here. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what are the works that we're called to do with this power and authority that we have? Is it to tell our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our coworkers about the reality-altering love of Jesus? Is it to vote? As American citizens, we get this privilege that not everyone else has. Is it to run for office? Is it to impact public policies and legislation? Is it to start an organization that champions a gospel-inspired social cause? Is it to heal the sick and the broken? within the supernatural power that Christ has given us? Is it to raise an exemplary family that can be salt and light in the world? Is it to feed the hungry? Is it to seek justice for the marginalized? Yes, the answer is yes. It is to do all of those things, and each of us are gonna be called to different things in our lives, so I don't want us to let our focus of our gaze rest on these things. Don't get caught up with the how right now, friends, and what I'm sharing. The more time you spend as a disciple of Jesus, the more time you spend in the word, letting it wash over you and transform your mind, the more time you spend in prayer, letting the Lord speak his word into your life and open doors and supernaturally allow you to do the work that he has set apart for you to do, the good deeds that he has prepared for you in advance, the more this how will become clear based on the ways that you've been called, based on each of your individual gifts, based on the circumstances you find yourselves in, and based on the time that we all live in. These are all factors that are honestly mind-blowing. How could anyone ever balance and juggle all of these things for a specific outcome to happen? But again, we worship the God of the universe. We are loved by the God of the universe. We are given authority by the God of the universe, by our Father. And it's in that understanding of his sovereignty that we talked about just a few minutes before, that we can rest easy, that he has put us in a time and a place. He has prepared us for his work, and he has given us the tools to do that work. And I want to hold that all in tension with this warning again here, and we see this also in the passage in Luke 20, where Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. And what is the this that Jesus is referring to? Well, that you have authority over the powers and authorities. We don't want to be pompous in the reality of the authority that we have. Look at so many of the leaders in world history and some in our own country over time. They get so inflated from their authority. In the same vein of working out our salvation with fear and trembling that we see in Philippians 2, Jesus here warns us not to lord our victory and authority over the enemy. Even the New Testament church fathers said, don't lord your power over the Gentiles. That's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to be suffering servants. That is how the kingdom of God advances. Push back darkness, push back sin, push back evil, be salt and light, be balm to the wound by being a servant. Don't be an authoritarian regime, if you will. And here, again, Jesus warns us not to lord our victory and authority over the enemy, but instead to take a more myopic view of our celebration. In Luke 20, he says, don't celebrate that you have authority over the rulers and authorities. He says, celebrate that your names have been written in the book of life. A heart's tendency toward pomp and pride and piety can speak volumes to the condition of the heart and can even taint the condition of the heart. We read this all throughout the pages 
of Scripture as we understand how the Pharisees approached the authority they perceived they had as the nation of Israel, as leaders, spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. Look in Matthew 7, 21 through 23 specifically, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? And in your name, did we not perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There is a tension that should exist in our minds to govern the way we move through the world and the way we relate to God and all of those around us. Acts 9.31 illustrates this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Did you hear what the author just said there? In the fear and in comfort. These are both held in tension. This keeps us humble. This keeps us hungry. And this keeps us smart. I'm, my background is business, so I apologize. This is not my day job. But uh, there's this, there are a million business frameworks, and there's this wonderful one that's, what does it mean to be a good leader? Even the secular world has recognized this in spades. Good leaders are hungry, they're humble, and they're smart. And it's amazing the wisdom that the world can ultimately draw from the scriptures because the scriptures are truth. God has revealed the way reality was intended to exist, and we would be wise to submit ourselves to them. So at, at the end of the day, this tension of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but also having peace despite our fear and trembling, helps us to ensure that we're not performing, that I'm not performing. It helps us ensure that we're not doing miracles without ever knowing the Father by whose power we do them. And there's a real danger here, friends. Do you hear it in the text? Those miracles can be done without ever a real relationship or knowledge of the Father. Those miracles are not a confirmation of relationship. Expression of that power is not a confirmation of that relationship. So as we move on, how does Jesus' stated sovereignty over demons give us the hope to be equipped in this world to do his will? What if we run into human opposition? Common refrain is that, well, we don't run into demons here in the West, so, you know, like, but I'm, you know, there's not some crazy, you know, serpent-wielding, uh, you know, witch doctor who's chasing me down the street. So is this really relevant to me today? And again, we talked about this a moment ago in Ephesians 6. It is extremely relevant because our enemy is not flesh and blood. Read it here again from the text. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, Jesus gives us a really, I think, intimate glimpse into how this concept can be grasped in little dialogue that he had with his disciples, specifically with Peter. Remember when Peter rebukes Jesus? And he says, surely you're not going to go die, Lord. You've got to go be king. We need to defeat the Romans. We need to overthrow this terrible religious institution that is the current church of Jerusalem and make it what it's supposed to be, the way that we were promised in the law and the prophets. You can't go die. That doesn't accomplish the mission. Peter didn't understand. He wasn't listening to Jesus and what it really meant to go accomplish that mission. So how does Jesus admonish Peter? This is one of the more famous lines in scripture that I feel like most people know. He says, get behind me, Satan. 
This was not an insult as it has been used in cultural context today. Instead, this was a clear understanding on the part of Jesus as who was pulling at Peter's heartstrings, who at that moment was the animating force behind Peter's words. Peter was not Jesus' enemy in that moment, and Jesus was wise and right to acknowledge that. Who was his enemy? It was Satan. So Jesus addressed the work of Satan in Peter's life, not necessarily the actual work of Peter's life or Peter himself. And this is an amazing reminder for us that this text is so relevant. And I'm going to land the plane here in just a few minutes. So with that understanding that this really is relevant to us today, that we have been given even greater authority and power than what the 72 were given, what does that all mean to us? How can we, we just can't go take the belt sander off, belt sander off the shelf. Not all of us have a neighbor named Pat like me who's just going to peek over and say, hey, I'm going to just hand this thing to you and you can use this thing. All analogies break down. Really, Jesus has peeked over the fence and said, here's this thing, it's the spirit. And here's this other thing, it's called the word of God. It's my word. And the spirit will be the animating force that lets this stand up in your life and authority to break down the barriers of other authority that is subservient to my authority, Jesus' authority, not my authority. So let's go back into that broader text in Ephesians 6.12. The context that the writer of Ephesians, Paul, is giving here when he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he doesn't just leave it there and say, all right, that's the statement of reality, Good luck, pick up your sword and go, you know, fight or just pray a lot harder or just, you know, fight sin a lot harder or go be a desert father and, you know, uh, eliminate any temptation from your mind that's not the word of God. Again, not to call those bad things, but that's not the medicine that the author prescribes for the understanding of reality. You know what he says right after that? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, therefore... Take up the whole armor of God. And this is a very well-memorized text in the Christian tradition. I'm just going to go through it quickly, hitting point by point to remind us what are the different screws and handles and cord and sandpaper on this belt sander? What does it look like, the belt sander being the armor of God? What does this thing do, and how do we access it as people in a fallen world? (coughs) Pardon me. Verse 14, we're told that there's truth in the word. We live in a world that hates truth. We live in a world that looks at truth and says, I don't want any part of that. We live in a world that says, I can give you my own truth. Your truth doesn't have to be my truth. And this is difficult. For some people, it causes the blood pressure to rise and the anger to rise, and it can lead to sin. For others, it can cause to disillusionment and disengagement. There's a whole spectrum of reactions in between. I just want us to remember that there is a truth, church, and it lies in the word of God. We have access to it, and it is unshakable, and it has been truth for thousands of years, and it will be truth for an eternity more. Amen? Verse 14, righteousness, our right standing before God. And this is not us being righteous on our own works. This is our positional righteousness because of the death and resurrection of Christ who has declared us righteous on his power, not by any of our own authority, not by any of our own works. We get to take up that righteousness and live in it. We have a new identity. Our job as a church is to push back on the words of the devil that say, 
you are sinful. You are fallen. You are evil. You messed up. You'll never get out of this pattern of habitual sin. You'll never worship God the way you want to. You'll never be good enough. These are all the voices of the devil that I have heard in my own life, and I'm sure some of you have heard in one way or another in your lives, as they've been either long or short. We are positionally righteous. We have a new identity. We've been clothed in the glory of Christ. We have his authority. Verse 15, this is a fun one. Readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's an interesting tie-in here that Paul is doing. We have a gospel of peace that we can live into, so let us be ready. Not let us be excited, or let us be powerful, or let us be whatever it might be. He says, let us be ready. And I think this is an important thing in our understanding of peace. Peace, don't we see this in the West? Peace can make us lazy. Peace can make us entitled. Peace can make us complacent. And so Paul warns us and encourages us all at the same time, be ready with the gospel of peace. Put on your running shoes. You're going to have a race to run, friends. You're going to have a course to navigate. So get ready to do it. And the gospel of peace is going to be what equips you to do it. Verse 16, faith. Faith is an important reminder that there is an element of desire that we need to express upon the promise. It's, it's a two-sided hook, if you will. And it's so easy to forget and think, oh, my faith isn't strong enough. Or is my needing of faith mean that I'm disqualified because it just doesn't seem to be in me so deeply that it is my reality? That I have to remind myself of my faith? Church, that's a part of our sin nature. That's okay. That's a part of the struggle. And there are volumes of scriptures, Old and New Testament, that speak to the importance and the value and the requirement of faith and the helpfulness of faith. Salvation, verse 17. This is an element, again, like righteousness, that is acted upon us. This is the grace element. We have been saved. We have been purchased. We have been redeemed. We did not purchase ourselves. We did not redeem ourselves. This is why some commentators look at the passage of the treasure in the field and also draw a parallel, a secondary parallel, to Jesus. That that man... Jesus could have been telling a two-sided story. That man buying the field, paying the cost, was Jesus. And we're the treasure. Now, we need to be careful with that analogy because it could very quickly pump up our self-esteem and our pomp. But it's important that Jesus did pay it all. There are many wonderful hymns uh, written about this concept. He paid it all to acquire our freedom. He loves us that much that he has taken everything that he did not deserve to take so we don't have to take anything that we deserve to take for the punishment of our sin and living as an affront to his righteousness. The word of God, verse 17, this ties back into verse 14 in part, not in full, but in part. There is truth in the word of God, but there is also practical wisdom in the word of God. There is encouragement in the word of God. There is application in the word of God that helps us to understand what it is that we are dealing with. Sure, we wage war against things that are not the flesh, against powers and principalities, but what does that mean? And we have letters written to the early churches that encourage us. We have the prophets that point to what suffering looks like and an understanding of old and new covenant fulfillment. We have an understanding of Jesus' own words. We have so much information in the scriptures, in the word of God. And the two pieces here that are tied together, verse 18 praying at all times in the spirit and humbly and urgently making your requests for the saints. 
Friends, perform a diagnostic over the week on your prayer life. And again, I do not say this to um, pass judgment, but Lord willing and spirit uh, willing to convict if needed. We cannot take up this belt sander without spending time in prayer. We're instructed to do so. We're told to be praying at all times in the spirit, not in our strength, in the spirit. Just shut out the world and spend time with your father in the spirit. Ask him to encourage you. Ask him to guide you. Ask him to give you all things and he'll give them to you in his name if asked rightly. If asked from your heart that has a desire to properly image him to the world around you in the way that represents him and brings glory to his name. And this other piece, so that's kind of a a self-focused element of prayer. Paul is smart and wise to tie in the second piece, which is to humbly and urgently make your requests for the saints. So don't just spend time in this personal, meditative, reflective state. Do spend time there, but don't just spend time there. Take a moment, many moments throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year, to pray for the saints, for our brothers and sisters who are suffering, for our brothers and sisters who are working alongside of us, multiplying the effort and the labor and the fruit that comes out of the harvest. We're to be self-centered and other-centered, if you will, in our prayer. So in conclusion, you and I are part of this biblical story. We aren't called to be on the sidelines. God has chosen to work in us and through us. Couldn't God have just snapped his fingers, so to speak, made it all happen? Did we really need the Bible translated into all these different languages? Couldn't he have just spoken through a universal United Nations style translator and everyone just understood at the same moment, like we know will happen upon his return, where somehow we'll all understand each other, all the saints from around the world throughout history, our own language is different from 500 years, let alone all the different thousands and hundreds of thousands, whoever, thousands of languages. There are these interesting physical limitations is the, the wrong way to think about it, but, it, but um, physical limitations that God seems to have placed upon himself in order to work through us. And that teaches us a really important thing about his character, that he loves us, that he trusts us, and he grows our love for him and our trust for him and teaches us more about himself because he chooses to work through us. Our God is an awesome God. We have been called to sand the paint off of that deck. And we have access to that belt sander. The same power and authority the 72 did. And as I've said before, even greater power and authority. We are called to be laborers of the harvest. So let's conclude with this quote from N.T. Wright. We read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors. To be reminded where it has come from and where it is going to, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. Christ died not to take authority back just for himself, church, but to deliver it to us for his purposes through us. And that purpose is to prepare our hearts and the rest of creation for the return of the king when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is 